coming up on Gamers Week Podcast. <laughs> the Peter Griffin. <laughs> I assume this is all going to get cut out. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'll use it somehow. <laughs> Recording. Okay. We're good to go on both ends. (laughs) 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 Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Gamers Week Podcast. Like the name says, we analyze the best, worst, and weirdest headlines of the past week in the video game industry. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. My name is Blue Williams. I'll be your host for this evening, and I am here with my two weird, weird friends. I've got Ryan Payne and the one and only... Donnie G. How are you guys doing tonight? You ready to podcast? I'm ready and I'm feeling weird, weird. <laughs> Super weird. Truth in advertising. That, that's my motto. Yo. All right. This is episode seven and today is Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. And let's get this show started right away with our reviews, reactions, and requests. We had several comments this week, uh, many revolving around this past Saturday when Donnie went to Royal Rumble and he held a sign that said Gamers Week podcast on one side and Night Trap is a great game on the other side. And he actually made it on TV. And you know what? He actually became internet famous as well. I guess uh, a bunch of wrestling groups had pictures of the sign that said Night Trap is a great game. (laughs) So uh, congratulations on your internet fame, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It was short lived. Um, One of our friends, um, Pezman Mike, notified us that one of the Sega CD groups on Facebook had posted it and said, oh, well, he's not wrong. And I'm glad other people share the same sentiment that I do, at least regarding Night Trap, because I believe it to be a great game. Uh, not everyone. <laughs> I know not everybody. <laughs> Most of them. Uh, lots of people messaging us on Twitter like, hey, I saw you on, on Royal Rumble. We mm-hmm. did get one comment from The Games Apprentice who said, I texted my friend when I saw your Night Trap sign because I made him play it last week. And he strongly disagrees. next up holy headshot says love the idea of the rock in a punch-out movie ryan reynolds would make an awesome little mac but he's getting a little old i know he's in everything these days but i could see tom holland being able to pull it off totally agree i think tom holland would be awesome uh but uh, to be honest with you maybe paul rudd because he'll never age so i think (laughs) maybe that might be a good option as well just just throwing that out there yeah we got options i think that's the takeaway here (laughs) Yeah. And uh, <laughs> final comment comes from our friend Sanity Crypto. And he says, you know, I have kept pondering the discussion you guys were having about the metaverse and the comparison to the Oasis. And I would think that we will get a version more or less. I think of it less as an existing place that companies agree to all participate in collaboratively and more so that it will be whoever creates a version of it first and does it to an adequate stature that the majority of the populace accepts it as king for the time being. Kind of in the sense of whichever social media platform rules the world for the time being, but mixed with an MMO. We'll probably get the MySpace version of the metaverse first, then maybe quite literally the Facebook version next. Now, I I agree. I think that he's right in the sense that when it comes down to it, we're not going to have the Oasis because the Oasis, of course, was made by somebody who appreciated gaming. They created this company in order to satisfy gamers. They had a vision behind it. And we're going to be stuck with the corporate version of whatever it is that they want us to have. So I agree. I, I think Sanity's on the on the nose, if you will, on this one. Yeah, like mm-hmm. every five minutes of Oasis use, you're going to get an ad in your um, holodeck or your VR headset, whatever, that you're going to have to, you're going to be forced to watch. And it will listen to you as well the entire time. It'll spy on you, right? <laughs> yep. It'll be like, how did it know I needed hemorrhoid cream? <laughs> <laughs> it knows. Right. It always knows. It always knows. All right, shall we move on? We shall, and it's time for the 
very important poll. <laughs> so every Monday on Twitter, we post our VIP, aka the very important poll. And if you'd like to participate, you can follow us on Twitter at GamersWeekPC. Now, the question that we asked this week, what is your favorite non-Nintendo handheld console? Our choices were Neo Geo Pocket, which got 7.1% of the vote, the Sega Game Gear, which got 23.3% of the vote, the PS Vita took this one with a 47.4% of the vote, and other gave us 22.1% of the vote. So let's look at some of the answers from the other categories, starting with Sniper Luffy, probably the PSP, such a wonderful little thing. Retro Gaming Inc. says, Atari Lynx, having acquired one last year, I have a real soft spot for this bruiser. Full 3D polygon games on a handheld in the early 90s. What a machine. Spaceport Orange said, Turbo Express, first handheld that just straight up played the same games as the TV console. Is Was the Express before the Second Nomad? I think so. I think you're right. Yep. Okay. And 8-Bit Relic, if the Nokia N-Gage wouldn't require you to remove the battery to swap games, I would say that one just because it's so unique. However, I really want to go by quality for decent price for an item, which you can also give an 8-year-old. I'll go with the Evercade. And then finally, MB the Great One says Tiger Electronics Games, <laughs> and then put Troll Face Smile. I like that one. <laughs> That's a nice touch. Excellent. So, Donnie, why don't we start off with you? Which one did you pick? Again, an, another tough choice. Um, I did mention the um, Turbo Express. Also, one of our other patrons, Davey, had mentioned the Sega Nomad. And I mm-hmm. responded, if you're going to mention the Sega Nomad, can't we also mention the Superboy? And I completely had a brain fart because that obviously is a it's a Nintendo handheld, not officially licensed from Nintendo. It's from Hyperkin, right. but still. Doesn't that make it a non-Nintendo handheld then? Does you're it? skirting the line here. Yeah, you're yeah. The line. <laughs> it's a fine line, okay? <laughs> I, you're right. It's not licensed. So in that sense, yes, I would go with uh, one of those two. But I, my choice, I actually picked the PlayStation Vita. Uh, I had a, a PSP for a while. And, you know, I, I'm not a big mobile or handheld gamer guy. So I, I had it for a little bit. Uh, you, you could watch movies on it. You could play games that looked just like the PS3. And I, I thought, where's the... Where's the where's the downside in this one? So uh, that was my choice was the PS Vita. Excellent. Blue, what about you? All of my favorite handhelds have been Nintendo handhelds. <laughs> I also had, let's see, we also have a Game Gear. Uh, we have a Wonderswan Color. We have a Neo Geo Pocket Color. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to just like pass by the fact that you got a Wonderswan <laughs> Color. Like, yeah, you know, it's no big deal. We got a Wonderswan Color. Yes, we do. And a PSP. I've always wanted a Vita, but never had one. So... Of those, I don't know what to pick. I'm going to go out on a limb. It might be cheating, but I'm going to say the analog pocket. So something that you don't have yet. Something that I don't have yet, but I know. I love it. I do love it. Ordered it like a year in advance. That's how much I love it. You can play so many different types of games on it. I don't see what's the downside. It's got to be the best. You sound like somebody who's like, uh, did you know that you can totally use a Raspberry Pi for like everything? Same energy, I guess, but I didn't say it like this. So It's the same mentality or energy that the typical fanboy or fangirl goes through. Like I've, Nintendo has done such a great thing with this and I just know, I know for a fact that their next handheld, it's going to be great. I know it. I'm going to, I love that one. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just mute people like that. <laughs> uh, what about you, Ryan? So uh, I would normally say the Sega Game Gear because I had one as a kid. I've got a lot of nostalgia for it. Uh, played a lot of Sega Game Gear games. It was actually really my first foray into Sega stuff. But I'm going to say that I think that the Sega Nomad is a far superior product in the sense that you can play regular Genesis or Mega Drive games on the system itself, and it can also plug into your TV. So essentially, it Mm. is a Nintendo Switch, more or less, before the Nintendo Switch existed. Uh, It's also got a kind of strange shape to it. So aesthetically, it's kind of appealing to me as well. And uh, the fact that... Again, it's so versatile and allows you to play real good games, not just watered down versions or you know, <laughs> potentially, uh, you know, Sega, basically Sega Master System game. Because that's what a Game Gear is. It's, it's like a Sega Master System on the go. 
Uh, I wanted to play Genesis games on the go, and uh, that's what the Nomad is there for. I have had plenty of opportunities to buy one. <laughs> I've played it uh, a bunch of times, but I still have yet to, to take one home. But uh, just like Blue, I'm picking something I don't actually own at this moment, <laughs> but I will someday. <laughs> but you have, you have used a Sega Nomad, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. I've had friends that have had them. Actually, I was about to buy one. I was so freaking close to buying one. What's the problem? Uh, you know, it was just like fear trying to figure out, do I really want to spend the money on this kind of thing? Uh, so, sounds like you do. <laughs> I balked on it. And then I had uh, non-buyer's remorse, went back the next day to go grab it. And it was gone. It was gone. So, I, you yep. chickened out. That, that, that's what happened. It, that's happened to me so many times. It's ridiculous. I'm just, I got to stop doing that. We're like, you know what? It'll be here tomorrow. It's never there tomorrow. That's the retro gaming tip. Number one, always buy it when it's in front of you. Cause it'll never be there tomorrow. That's solid advice. <laughs> <laughs> I had an interesting story about a, a nomad. Um, I think it was last year where some lady was selling one on Facebook marketplace in my area as, as they all do for a ridiculously low price. And not only was it a second nomad, it was a second nomad complete in box and she only wanted $75 for it. $75. I was too late to see it. Uh, It was like 20 minutes old. And in my area, if something is that good for that low of a price, usually within like three minutes, it's gone. Got to spend a basically turn game hunting into a full-time job. Exactly. Sit here with a cup of coffee, watching Facebook marketplace, refreshing it kind of like the stock market. Just to hoard old stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What can I spend my money on today? Yeah. (laughs) Now it's time in the show for our patron shout outs. You wouldn't think that a brand new podcast would already have patrons. And frankly, no one is more surprised than we are. Here are the generous folks supporting Gamers Week on Patreon. We have two new patrons to announce. A big welcome and thank you to Stephen Sand and Terry Kinnair. They'll be joining Ducks in Disguise, Jim and Colleen, Games with Coffee, Davey PGH, the Red Ox PDX family, including Shannon and Luke, Zach Huge Thanks, Random Retro Dude, Michael Lundin, Princess Kitty Mew Mew, Mega Retro Man, Emo Esk, Rybread's number one fan, Fruitcake's number one stan, The Wizard of Zardoz, Clayman71, Great Siaman81, BNT Zilla Guy, Crunchy Kong, Sure Snacks, Frank Grande, and producer BTW. If you like what you're here today, and we really hope you do, please consider joining us on Patreon. Your support helps cover the cost of producing the show, as well as the other cool stuff we'll be doing like prizes and giveaways. Visit patreon.com slash gamersweek or follow the link in the show notes to learn more. Excellent. And we have some new things soon to be announced for our dear patrons. So now is the time to get in. Get in on the ground floor, people. All right. It's headlines time. First up from IGN, PlayStation to launch more than 10 live service games by 2026. Speaking during Sony's latest earnings call, CFO Hiroki Totoki said, through close collaboration with Bungie and the PlayStation Studios, we aim to launch more than 10 live service games by the fiscal year ending March 31st, 2026. Live service games are games that are updated with new content over time, often making the majority of their money through in-game purchases rather than initial sales. Tatoki pointed to a huge jump in revenue from these kinds of games as part of the reason for Sony pursuing the model. From calendar year 2014 to calendar year 2021, the size of the global game content market doubled, driven by add-on content revenue from live game services, which grew at an average annual rate of 15% during this period. We expect this trend to continue going forward. It will be something of a major shift for first-party Sony games, which have tended to focus on single-player narrative experiences in recent years, often to huge acclaim. It's unlikely that Sony will abandon that strategy, but it feels likely that live service games will become a major part of the company's output. Interestingly, while these may be first-party games, they may not be the exclusives that Sony is notable for sticking to. Totoki also said the company plans to extend its presence across non-PlayStation platforms, referencing the recent success of God of War on PC. We intend to acquire new users and increased engagement on platforms other than PlayStation, he said. So live service games. Boo. Yeah, boo is right. I don't 
like the fact of giving us a base game and then continuing to update it over time. I have never liked that model. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I like DLC every once in a while, depending on the game. Like I know uh, Hollow Knight, I've recently played through that and actually bought the entire game with all of the, the downloadable content for it. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm at like 97, 98% finished on that game. Very nice. 112% is what I'm aiming for. Anyway, I I like that sort of DLC and coming back and revisiting an, an old game like that, but continuing to pump out stuff for a game that you, you want people to continue to spend more money on it when you've only given like you've, you've only given them the tray and now they have to come back and pay for each little bit of food on that tray. I just, I, I can't get on board with that. I'm always reminded of destiny, which of course has been a huge success, but my problem just kind of as an observer has always been that I've seen people who, who didn't keep up with it. They got out of it, and then by the time they tried to get back in, they'd missed so much that they were so far behind. It was mm-hmm. just like a barrier to re-entry, so to speak, of them being able to pick up the game again. And that does not interest me at all. I don't want a game that I have to grind constantly. You know, I think that there are games that we choose to to do that with. So there are certain games, like, for example, I play Splatoon all the time. I got like 500 hours in it. But that's a game that I've chosen to play. It's the same gameplay every time I go online, I play with friends, whatever. And there's no opportunity, like you said, to miss out on that. But I don't want a game that, that basically is saying that if I sign up with this on day one, I got to stick with it for the next 10 years because I've invested so much money and time in it. Uh, that I would neglect playing other games because I have to do the the quests or you know right. go after the next thing every single time. That to me is it's almost like it's forcing folks to say you need to choose one game to play for the rest of your life. It's like those those Twitter polls that go <laughs> out and say you can only choose one. <laughs> right, uh, we're experiencing that now. That sucks. That's terrible. Case in point: World of Warcraft. You know, I played that game for I'd say six, twelve, six, about eight years. And it got to a point where you had to log in, do your daily quests, um, spend a couple of hours doing that. And if you wanted to do any type of main game, end game content, like big raids or, or whatnot, if you were buying the the next chapter of World of Warcraft, like Burning Crusade, and you hadn't done any of the older stuff, all like nobody's focusing on that older stuff now. So if you have if you haven't done it, it's tough to find other people that want to go back and try to get old gear or do old quests when right. all the new stuff is staring you right at the face. Right. And that's another thing that I don't like about these types of games is if you can't play by yourself, for most of them, you have to have a, a, a clan or a party, people to go with you. And then I'm not interested right. in that either. Like I, if I want to play at 3 a.m., I want to play at 3 a.m. I don't want to have to worry about whether there's enough other people online to play with. Exactly. You know, you, you can't sit there and text people at 3 a.m. and say, hey, you up? You want to yeah. play? It's like the weirdest booty call ever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you up? <laughs> yeah, what's up? But that also brings to the point of like, what is the age range that would be uh, this would be appropriate for? If you think about it, if you're in your 30s, chances are you've, you've got a, a stable career, you, you know, you've got a family potentially. Uh, do you have the time to invest six hours a day into this game in order to just keep up to things? So right. who's your, your audience? It's uh, kids in college. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know, younger kids, potentially it's, it's uh, mid twenties, but that entire marketplace that I think that most people who have disposable income, and I think if I remember right, the average gamer is like 35 years old. You're alienating a huge swath of folks that would want to play games like this, but will not have the time because they'll be behind. And that that also sucks to me. I don't know. I, th- I agree with what you're saying, but I also think plenty of 35-year-olds manage to play Destiny. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and plenty of 35-year-olds uh, find six hours or more to dump into gaming. How? Teach me. Teach me how you have all this time. <laughs> well, especially we're, for, for somebody with a family like myself, it's after the, you know, I, I work a normal day shift um, at my job. I usually am done at three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon, spend time with family, eat dinner. And then after that, I, I do my gaming. And that can last sometimes until like 1 a.m. Although recently I haven't been staying up as late. But um, that's where I typically get all of my gaming time in is after I've done family stuff. You are a good man. You're, you are the target market <laughs> here for Sony. Sony's going to love you. It's a Donnie market. 
<laughs> it is a Donnie market. That we need to we need to trademark that thing, put it on a stamp, put it on a shirt, whatever. I like it. Donnie market. TM. <laughs> Next up from PC Mag, Blizzard is creating a new survival game IP for PC and consoles. In a Ooh. news post yesterday, Blizzard explained how it's going on a journey to a whole new universe. A whole new universe. <laughs> <laughs> Home to a brand new survival game for PC and console. Very little is known for about the project beyond Blizzard attempting to make a vast realm it intends to fill with heroes and adventures. The announcement was used to pull out a call for new people to come and join the development team. Blizzard needs to fill a range of art design, engineering roles on the project, and there's sure to be a lot of interest. Blizzard's last new video game IP was Overwatch, which first appeared in 2016. Before that, Blizzard gave us Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo, as well as Hearthstone and Heroes of the Storm. Based on track record alone, it would be a brave person who would bet against the new survival game franchise turning into another success for the company. I'm brave. (laughs) You want to go work for Blizzard? No, No, I want to bet against Blizzard. (laughs) (laughs) A lot has changed for Blizzard recently. A lot of their core audience has abandoned them. You know, they're just being bought out. There's going to be staff changeover, culture changeover. I don't know. And and then, then the other thing is, as the article says, they've had so many successes. Like at some point, something's not going to work out. There's so many survival games to choose from now. Do we really need another one? Well, it all depends on what the content is and, and how well it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, because people will come out with whatever whatever's hot in the market somebody's bound to come out with their own version of it, you know, just to see if, if they can strike gold and, and make it better than what's out, what's out there. It's, but it's the, it's the hot hand fallacy in any type of sport, like especially basketball, you get the, the, the hot shooter who keeps making these shots and you're like, Oh, he can't lose. He can't lose. And that's kind of what blizzard or the thought or the consensus is regarding blizzard right now is all their existing IPs. Like the ones mentioned, when are they going to put out a bust? So I'm going to be uh, an idiot here and ask, uh, what specifically constitutes a survival game? Let's go get the technical definition, shall we? <laughs> you stay alive? No, I was looking like like Left for Dead, that kind of thing. Is that is that what we're talking about here? Is survival games are a subgenre of action video games, usually set in hostile, intense open world environments. Players generally begin with minimal equipment and are required to survive as long as possible by crafting tools, weapons, shelters, and collecting resources. Many survival games are based on randomly or procedurally generated persistent environments. Uh, I don't like survival games. Uh, Rust would be an example of that, right? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, or Don't Starve or any of those. I think there's a lot of indie games that do survival games really well, even if I don't particularly care for the genre. The odds are in Blizzard's favor. They know what they're doing. They know how to be successful, especially with games that are ongoing. Like I said, they got to screw up sometime, and they've screwed up a lot in the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) It's bound to happen. (laughs) Blue sitting there, like, rooting for the dud. Come on, Blizzard. (laughs) I hate Blizzard. Everybody knows that. Hate, 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 loathe, hate, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) From Deadline... It takes two developer Hazelight Studios to adapt video game for TV film with Sonic the Hedgehog producer and writers. Video game developer Hazelight Studios will team with Sonic the Hedgehog co-producer Dimitri M. Johnson and his DJ2 Entertainment to bring It Takes Two to screen. The two-player video game, which took home the marquee Game of the Year prize at the Game Awards in 2021, follows married couple Cody and May, who are struggling to keep it together for their young daughter. They're transformed into magical dolls and must navigate their hardest issues and insecurities with the help of an anthropomorphic couples therapy book named Dr. Hakim. No studio or network has been attached to the project yet, but Sonic the Hedgehog writers Pat Casey and Josh Miller, who will return to pen the film's upcoming sequel alongside John Whittington, will adapt the video game. The reception of It Takes Two has been absolutely stellar from press and players alike, said Oscar Wallantis, studio manager at developer Hazelight Studios. We're very excited for the opportunity to expand this beloved IP beyond gaming for both old and new fans to appreciate. Now, do, are either of you familiar with It Takes Two? Um, I haven't played this game. I've heard wonderful things about it, but I really like this story because It Takes Two was like 
the feel good game of 2021. We had such a, a a lousy year in so many ways. So many of the AAA <laughs> studios completely let us down. It was kind of a a blah year as far as AAA titles were concerned. And then along comes the Game Awards in December, and who should take home the the Game of the Year award? But this little bitty feel good indie game, and it was a huge win. And that was on the tail of. It takes to the game was having to uh, abandon a trademark they were trying to file because of Take Two Interactive. The AAA studios at that point seemed like they couldn't get any worse, and so it was a nice win for the little guys to see It Takes Two take home the goatee, and now to see that they're getting a TV and film adaptation is really neat to see. I have yet to play this game. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, it looks great. I, from what I've seen, it looks amazing. Um, it, it's it's definitely in my wheelhouse. I just, I, it's backlog, add it to the backlog because I have not had pile. a chance to, to, to play it. Exactly. When you, when I hear it takes two, I think of Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock, you know, the it takes two <laughs> to make a thing go rock. I heard that and I'm like, that's where my mind immediately went. So I, I'm the opposite end of the spectrum where I've, I've seen and heard things about it enough to know that it probably is not in my wheelhouse <laughs> as far as games go. I don't know. It's something about the the warm and fuzzy feelings. Like I avoid them like the plague. <laughs> I have an emotionalist shell and I do not want to be forced to have emotions that aren't related to something dying in a game <laughs> immediately. So uh, I, it's cool. I love it. I think, it, it, again, the, the story behind the fact that it got the Game of the Year award is amazing and spectacular. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't, I don't think this would be something that I'll be a, I'll be a day one watcher, if you will. Don't you usually complain that non-Final Fantasy RPGs don't have serious enough stories for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's your point? <laughs> Nothing, just putting it out there. Oh, I see. So you're just trying to undermine everything I have to say <laughs> because <laughs> that's my biggest gripe is, okay. Just calling out one of your flaws. There we go. I have so many. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Next up from NPR, the New York Times buys Wordle. The New York Times has acquired Wordle, a simple word guessing game for an undisclosed price in the low seven figures. The newspaper announced Monday. The game, created by Josh Wardle, will initially continue to be free to play. Wordle, which was released in October 2021, is a daily word word puzzle that has soared in popularity, amassing millions of daily players within months. To play the game, players have six tries to guess a five-letter word. Many users choose to share their results, a grid of green, yellow, and black boxes, on social media. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Every day, and for the longest time, I had no idea what this was about. I was like, oh, cool blocks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Wordle, who named the game after his last name, released Wordle to the public in October 2021. He initially created the game for his partner, who he'd known was a fan of word games. On November 1st, the game had 90 players, but nearly two months later, the figure ballooned to 300,000, according to the release from the New York Times. We could not be more thrilled to become the new home and proud stewards of this magical game and are honored to help bring Josh Wardle's cherished creation to more solvers in the months ahead, said Jonathan Knight, general manager for games at the Times. The same Jonathan Knight from NKOTB? Uh, Doubtful. <laughs> uh, got my hopes up for a second. <laughs> Probably not. But you know what this, this whole Wordle thing reminds me of is like when Angry Birds was really big. Mm -hmm. And it was freaking everywhere and everyone you knew was playing it. I never played Angry Birds and I haven't played Wordle, but it doesn't matter because it's everywhere and there's no way to escape it even if you don't play it. Right. Everybody else is playing it. It's, it's literally everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, I played for the first time this week <laughs> and I was able to guess the word in four guesses. And I haven't played back since because there's a part of me that doesn't want to, to break the 100% streak. <laughs> it's, it's a really cool concept. I love the, the fact that it's so simplistic and still so fun. The only thing that, that concerns me is the phrase will initially continue to be a free play. There it is. Free to play mm -hmm. 
we always got to turn something pure <laughs> and bastardize it. Yeah. Right, into a cash grab. I mean, this sucker, it undisclosed price in the low seven figures. I mean, that could be two million, three million, whatever. We don't know, but New York Times is not putting down that much money for nothing. Right. They plan on making it back and more on a mobile game, which, you know, fits with what we've been describing yep. so far in this show. But if there's a small silver lining, I guess it could be the idea that anybody could create a little simple little app game. And if you happen to strike gold like Josh Wardle, you could get a huge payday for it. Right. It's like winning the lottery. Uh, that just reminds me of a game like Flappy Bird. Remember when Flappy Bird came out? That was super yep. simplistic. Uh, and that made a butt ton of money. How much is a butt ton? It's well, actually, that's a unit of measurement. <laughs> if you really wanted to know this, are you ready? Okay, a butt ton actually refers to a units of wine. It's like four hundred and sixty-one gallons of wine, and it's it's like four or five hog heads of wine. There's, I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm not making this up. <laughs> wow, it's an actual unit of measurement. It is an actual unit of it measurement. Is. I asked him before, like teasing him that same question, and I, and I heard an earful about it before. So this time I was like, nope, lips are zipped. I'm not saying it. <laughs> Is a butt ton the same as an ass load? <laughs> well, technically, it's a butt load, not a butt ton. So <laughs> I, I will go there. But okay. a butt, B-U-T-T-E, is a unit of measurement. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're actually like me, Ryan, with the um, you're, you're not wanting to tarnish your your winning legacy with uh, with Wordle. Yep. I, I'm the same way with my, my NBA Jam Arcade 1-Up cabinet. Um, it is <laughs> capable. I have never played online. I have had people try to challenge me and I just, I'm nope, nope. I do not want to tarnish my perfect zero and zero record where I've never lost. <laughs> so I'm never playing online with that one. Is a zero, zero record really a record? Yeah, because it's it's it's. I've never lost, but I've never won. I can keep it regulated to beating the the kids here around the neighborhood and some of my <laughs> friends that come over. But as far as like the online record is concerned, it's a it's a wash. So I'm happy with that. He is undefeated, folks. Undefeated. Exactly. Defeated. Thank you. Thank you. See, I can understand if you went online and won one game and decided to hang it up <laughs> like that. I would get that. I would hundred percent get that. But this whole zero zero thing, nah. <laughs> it's like you gotta at least try yeah you gotta put yourself out there not happening you're not undefeated you're undefined because <laughs> if you're defined <laughs> by zero there you go there you go <laughs> math humor leave it to Ryan alright let's move on to our top three new releases for the week alright first up is the Waylanders which is available on PC it slips the bonds of fate in this party based RPG filled with Celtic ma- myth and Celtic math, like that's <laughs> Celtic math. <laughs> Apparently, I have math on the brain. Awesome. Celtic myth and historical legend. Discover thrilling adventures alongside mortal companions and immortal allies as you explore the world of Waylanders. Next is Life is Strange Remaster Collection. The platform will be PS5, Xbox Series X and S. That's so hard to say. <laughs> PlayStation 4, PlayStation, or Xbox One, Switch, Stadia, and PC. Experience the BAFTA award-winning stories of the narrative adventure games Life is Strange, now beautifully remastered, and enhanced visuals and vastly improved animation using mocap technology. And lastly, Dying Light 2 Stay Human. Platform is going to be PS5, Xbox Series X and S, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. The virus won and civilization has fallen back into the dark ages. The city of one of the last human settlements is on the brink of collapse. Use your agility and combat skills to survive and reshape the world. Your choices matter, people. So which of these three uh, are you guys most excited about? I really like the sound of the Waylanders, except for the whole party-based thing. Like we were already talking about, I don't want to have to play with other people. Just <laughs> let me play it by myself. But I would be so down for a game all about Celtic histories and Celtic myth. That would be amazing. Totally. I, and it's something that I think is a genre hasn't really been touched that much uh, from a video game perspective. But there's a lot of really cool stories that, that are available to to gamers and to, to game developers that they could pull from, from that. Even like, uh, for example, like Budokai and her uh, entire war campaign and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, 
also you've got all of the different deities that are part of the, the Celtic pantheon. Uh, there's a lot to, to bring from, from that IP for that IP. Uh, so I'm, I agree. I'm excited. What about you, Donnie? Uh, I don't know. Um, you don't want yet another post-apocalyptic zombie shooter? No, I, I don't. I, I'm so tired <laughs> of that genre. It is just, it's been driven into the ground. Um, the horse is dead. It's been ground into a fine powder. There's no <laughs> reason to continue to beat that horse. It's it's done. It's over with. It's kind of like the whole World War II first-person shooter genre yep. that, uh, that pioneered the early 2000s and the late 90s. It's like, all you did was World War II stuff. Every single shooter game that came out was World War II based or a World War II story. I was so done and over it. Um, the, the way we're, or the Waylanders, I'm a little interested in. Life is strange. I've played that game for the Xbox. It's a it's a unique uh, it's a unique game where you can actually it's it's like a choose your own adventure. You you choose the reactions you want your characters to have. And if you, if your path starts to take a specific turn that you don't like, you can rewind it and go back in time and make a different choice and play that Avenue out. So I, I, I think life is strange is probably uh, the one I'm looking forward to. Nice. All right, let's go ahead and thank our sponsor. Gamers week podcast is proudly sponsored by the retro game club podcast. It's a fantastic family-friendly retro gaming podcast. In each episode, Rob and Hugh pick two games to play and discuss, as well as news, interviews, and other topics. Currently, they're working through Bonk's Adventure, Nice, and Doom 64. Visit RetroGameClub.net to check them out, or follow the link in the show notes. All right, can I get take like a quick break here? Yeah. Smoke if you got them. <laughs> Everybody take a five-minute break. Smoke if you got them. <laughs> the Peter Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> I assume this is all going to get cut out. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'll use it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, it's main topic time from Gizmodo. Why Sony really bought Bungie, and it's not just about Microsoft. Sony acquired Bungie on Monday in yet another colossal acquisition between two gaming giants. While the advantages of owning a AAA developer with a popular IP would seem obvious, the specifics of the deal have led to questions about Sony's strategy in the intensifying war against Xbox. Sony is spending $3.6 billion to buy Bungie, the developers of the first-person shooter franchise Destiny, and the creators of the Halo franchise, which is now under Microsoft rule. Despite being wholly owned by Sony, Bungie will continue to act as an independent studio when it comes to the development and publishing of its games. And in case this purchase worried Microsoft fans, Bungie games, both current and upcoming, promise to be multi-platform, meaning Sony won't force console exclusivity. Expansions, cross-platform features, and in-game items will continue to be offered on Xbox as they are on PlayStation. And finally, Bungie will exist alongside Sony's PlayStation Studio Group, rather than joining some two dozen other studios under the division. In short, Bungie will operate as normal, but now belongs to Sony. Comparisons between this acquisition and Microsoft's recent $68.7 billion Activision Blizzard purchase, that is 19 bungees, <laughs> are inevitable, and they've led to some question whether Sony is properly leveraging its new asset. After all, Microsoft just purchased multi-AAA IPs from one of the largest existing game developers. Some of those titles will likely become exclusives, and the others will at least help boost Game Pass subscriptions. So then... What was it that Sony hopes to gain from buying a single studio that has focused all recent efforts on one game? In short term, Sony will be will welcome a larger player base and a steady stream of income from the purchase of expansions and in-game currency made by Destiny's sizable and stable player base. Maintaining that player base means keeping them together rather than fracturing the group, which can team up and compete thanks to crossplay. Microsoft will do the same with Call of Duty, although it's unclear whether that's a strategic decision or a requirement to honor existing agreements. Beyond a popular game that could help fill a gaping... 
gaping beyond a popular game that (laughs) man certain terms just like they show up and it's like immediately gutter beyond a popular game that could help fill a gaping first person shooter hole (laughs) sony is buying a studio with pedigree one it can help expand and trust enough to release quality titles Sure enough, Bungie CEO Pete Parsons wrote in a blog post that the most immediate change will be the ability for Bungie to more quickly hire talent across the studio. If all goes well, Bungie will follow Naughty Dog and Insomniac Games as Sony-owned studios whose releases drive huge sales figures and snatch awards at the end of the year. Sony can make for the ideal partner. Not only has the company shown an ability to nurture studios, but Sony Pictures, a sister division within the Japanese conglomerate, has the knowledge and resources to turn Destiny into a massive media franchise. We are mere weeks away from the release of the Uncharted movie, an adaptation of one of Sony's most successful video game series, and the post-apocalyptic thriller franchise The Last of Us is in the process of being turned into an HBO TV series. So the initial thought that all of us that this was just tit for tat with Microsoft may not exactly be the case here. They're not going to make anything exclusive in regards to any, it sounds like any future games potentially, but definitely with Destiny, they're not going to push anybody out. This is just another opportunity for them to gain another revenue stream, which is a good move by Sony. If you think about the studios that PlayStation or that Sony bought just last year in in 2021, they bought uh, Housemark, who made Returnal. They bought Bluepoint, Firesprite, uh, Nix's Software, and they bought Valkyrie Entertainment, who, of course, did God of War and uh, Forza Motorsports. So Sony's been busy for a while now. The fact that they would be scooping up studios is not new. But, of course, what makes this notable is that Destiny is such a huge huge title, as well as them being the originators of Halo, which is, of course, the Microsoft flagship uh, series. Right. They even named after their personal assistant, Cortana, for crying out loud, (laughs) from Microsoft. (laughs) Right. You're you're exactly right, Ryan. They're they're doing it just simply for, or what looks like to be, just because of the revenue stream. But how long can Destiny continue to be a positive revenue stream for Sony now, um, with Destiny being out for X amount of years, we're already with Destiny 2. Is there a Destiny 3 in development? Will there be a Destiny 4? Is this something that people will continue to put their money in uh, long term? And it sounds like to be similar to what they've announced, the fact that they've got 10 live service games. And obviously, mm-hmm. Destiny is one of those. So maybe they're bringing on the you know, knowledge base that Bungie brings from having a successful one of those that they can bring to marketplace so that if they decide to do that themselves, I mean, they got 10 of these potentially coming out by 2026. Uh, it sounds like it's a decent partnership for where they want to go with the company. Yeah, good point. $3.6 billion is still not nothing. It's, it's a lot of money to invest into uh, the future of gaming. But uh, I don't want that to be what every game eventually becomes. It looks like that might be the direction because everybody, all the news that we've been seeing is that, and especially with what we just touched on, most of these companies now want to make that base game and make you buy the add-ons. We've had the discussion amongst ourselves uh, about the price of games being something that's going to go up. Well, the price of having a game that constantly changes and having to add new things to it is exponentially more for the consumer uh, mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is potentially spending, you know, hundreds of dollars for, for this game just to enjoy it. I was trying to figure out, uh, see if I could look up how much money the Destiny franchise has made, and I can't seem to find it. I keep coming across this number that the original Destiny made $300 million in microtransactions. Wow. It's, it's tough to argue with, with those kind of numbers. People initially put a lot of money into Destiny. They bought the base game. They bought all, you know, the different expansions and various microtransactions, and then... Destiny became free to play and pissed off a lot of its (laughs) player base that had stayed with the game over the years and sunk a lot of money into it that now people could play for free what they had put a lot of money into. So to kind of go back to your original point, I don't know how much more life Destiny really has in it, but obviously Bungie knows how to make those kind of games and and be very successful at them. So this is a, a really smart buy for Sony. As the article says, it fills that first-person shooter hole. 
How big of a hole did the uh, was the was the first person shooter hole? Uh, it was a gaping first person shooter hole. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm juvenile. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one thing that could bring renewed attention back to Destiny is a movie route, like it kind of suggests here at the end. Right, and I'm cool with them using IPs to make new and exciting media. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of terrible in the past, like in the 90s and 2000s uh, adaptations of video game stuff. But recently, there's been some really great movies and, and TV series and stuff that have been made out of video games IPs. It's finally like they're, they're figuring it out. <laughs> that right. We can finally make something that that is similar to the game. It doesn't have to be exactly like the game. Uh, and you know what? We can still create new narratives and interesting stuff. Like for The, the Witcher, for example, uh, Castlevania, the animated series it was fantastic mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so even even sonic the hedgehog the movie wasn't that bad after they fixed it no that's good <laughs> so um, i'm totally cool if that's the route that they want to go and especially with a suit a studio like sony that's going to give it the right treatment um yeah i think sony has the the know-how on how to make um movie properties out of existing game properties case in point i am very excited to see the new uncharted movie even though mark Wahlberg is playing sully are you kidding me you don't like the mustache <laughs> i no. he's mark Wahlberg doesn't have a mustache <laughs> That's the thing. Sully is supposed to be an older guy, which I know Mark Wahlberg. He's he's in his 40s now. Uh, He's no longer the Marky Mark of old that we all know and love. But Sully is like a middle-aged older guy, like I'd say probably 50s or 60s. Yeah, He's got like salt and pepper with a mustache. Isn't this supposed to be like the Uncharted prequel story? I don't know that for sure. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be the prequel story. Okay, then my whole argument might be wrong, but who knows? <laughs> you can still make the argument that the mustache looks bad. It looks so bad. But and here's the thing, you know, people will argue that characters don't stay true to what the existing IP is. You can talk about um, the old Daredevil movie from the early 2000s with Michael Clark Duncan, and he played Kingpin, and he he played a great Kingpin. Was that the Ben Affleck one? Yep, that was that Ooh. was the horrible Ben Affleck Ooh. one with um, God, what's the guy's name that played Bullseye in there? Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell. Yeah, I think so. I almost said mockery, but definitely not Colin Mockery, <laughs> <laughs> which he would have been an awesome <laughs> <That's> Bullseye. Yeah. <laughs> people people argued the fact that you know Michael Clark Duncan obviously is black and. Wilson Fisk in the comics is white. The other one would be Nick Fury, who is a white character in the comics, who is a, a black character in the the Marvel movie MCU. Uh, people will argue that all day long, but when it works, when who they've cast works, color doesn't matter. Yeah, I really don't care if there's a change into it, as long as it's entertaining. If you want to switch somebody from male to female, I don't care. Yeah, me neither. I'm here to be entertained. You want Larry Croft, the Tomb Raider? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yes, I would take a Larry Croft, like a leisure suit Larry Croft. I, I think would actually <laughs> leisure suit Larry Croft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to draw a leisure suit Larry guy in the 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 Tomb Raider Laura Croft outfit with the the tank top, the short shorts, <laughs> and the the gun straps around his thighs and whatnot. That's gonna be great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. The big lapel. (laughs) (laughs) The big lapel. It's great. All right, let's move on then. Class is now in session. It's time for Game and History 101 with Professor Rybred. Thank you for coming, students. Please take your seats. Welcome to Professor Rybred's Gaming History 101. And in today's session, we will talk about the technology behind the games that we played as kids and why a game from Europe might not work on a TV from North America. Of course, we're talking about PAL versus NTSC. So before I jump into this, uh, you guys, are, I would imagine, are familiar with this idea that in Europe had PAL, in North America we had NTSC? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the first time I realized it was when um, I went to London for a summer when I was in college. 
and came across a big DVD sale while I was there. Ah. So I was like, hey, cool. I bought a bunch of DVDs. And I was like, why won't they work on my laptop? (laughs) (laughs) You got bamboozled. Yeah. I was like, dang it. And you know, the interesting part about this is that it was, it wasn't like consciously decided that there needs to be a difference between Europe and, and North America and Japan. It just has to do with kind of the technology that was decided a long time ago. So that's, it's kind of where the, the reason to to cover this topic, uh, was that for one, it's two terms that get thrown around a lot, uh, but rarely get discussed what they mean and why. But it's also a chance for you to, to, uh, um, actually anyone who doesn't (laughs) listen to this podcast. So you're welcome. (laughs) So. Starting off at the beginning, we need to explain something first about the nature of how electricity uh, was first produced in turbines. And I promise you this is going to pay off later, so don't turn your ears off just yet. Uh, But I'm assuming you may have heard of the term Hertz. Have you guys heard this term Hertz before? Um, My brothers used to give me a Hertz donut all the time. Oh, there we go. (laughs) I knew that was coming, and I'm so glad you said it. But the term Hertz is actually, you know, we think about it when dealing with computers, right? Like my system has this many megahertz or what have you. But Hertz, the the term really started off with how many times a turbine spins per second. So if you're trying to create generate electricity utilizing a turbine, that number, the more often it turns, the the higher or higher the hertz are going to be, right? So for example, 60 times a second is 60 hertz. So, if we look at it from that point of view, the U.S. decided that 60 hertz would be the standard back in the 1800s. We're talking all the way back uh, in the day. Because what they saw was less flickering of light bulbs at that speed. So, they were able to maintain the signal long enough for, for like a consistent illumination of each light bulb. Now, Europe settled on 50 hertz for a similar reason. They started off at 40, noticed the bulbs were flickering, upped it to 50, and that seemed to work. So... That's where the standards came, and that's where they've been uh, for a very long time in both of those uh, regions of the of the globe, right? Sixty in, in North America, fifty hertz in uh, in Europe. So, if you fast forward to when televisions were first being made, those television sets had to kind of match up to produce a picture using their supply frequency, so either fifty or sixty hertz, right? So this means that in Europe, screens were refreshed at basically 50 times per second, while in North America and Japan, they were refreshed at 60 times per second. That doesn't make a whole lot of difference as far as viewing goes when you're you're watching a natural TV show, because each time those broadcasts were made, they were made for those specific televisions and electricity output. So there's there's no difference. If you watch a television show in the US versus Europe, you know, you're not going to experience problems in regards to that. So PAL stands for Phase Alternate Lines and TSC stands for National Television Standards Committee. Both arbitrary terms, but we use them as obviously as acronyms to kind of explain things. Now, this is not a problem that we would see as far as game performance when games are coded at the right rate. However, in the 80s and 90s, the two biggest players in the marketplace came from Japan. That meant a vast majority of the games were being coded for 60 frames per second. So if we look at that from a technology point, it becomes a problem when you try to play a 60 frame or 60 hertz game on a 50 hertz television. So what ends up happening is slowdown by about 17%. And it's everything from like music to responsiveness to motion controls on the screen. All of that is, interestingly enough, reduced. Now, if you aren't familiar with how a game plays on a different console in a different country, you may not know the difference. And in fact, uh, what we saw is probably one of the worst defenders of this one is Sonic 1 for the Genesis or the European Mega Drive. And you can actually hear the difference between the two. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a little bit of a soundbite. And I want you to be able to listen to see if you can hear. It's going to switch back and forth between 60 and 50 hertz. 60 is going to be a little bit faster and 50 is going to be a little bit slower.
It is like Sonic is stuck in mud. Right. Like it immediately throws me off. Like I, I, I know the tempo, the regular tempo of mm-hmm. Sonic and how the music should play. And when I start listening to that, I'm just like, something's wrong. My my brain is sending out all all hands on deck, something is wrong. Get to the battle <laughs> stations, figure this out. Reminds me of like when you're playing an like an old NES game and it, yep. there's too much going on on the screen and everything just slows down. It it gives me that vibe. So uh, that's an interesting point to bring up is that on the old NES, if there were too many sprites on the screen at once, it would in fact slow things down uh, because the processor in it just couldn't keep up with things as they were going on. So you're right. That's a kind of a similar experience. And actually what's happening here, it's kind of the same thing, not a hundred percent, but it's similar. So the slowdown actually has nothing to do with the system itself. So the system itself could output at 60 hertz for a mega drive, but it's actually due to a mismatch between coding for the game and the TV itself. So basically the TV won't accept the signal as it's intended. Uh, so the end result, it's, it's like pushing a game through a funnel, right? If you're looking at it from a 60 hertz perspective, you're basically pushing it through a tube. It, it runs exactly as it should at the speed that it should. But what we're doing is we're bottlenecking the game a little bit. So it stretches it out, right? So uh, for example, what would take 40 something seconds on a Genesis will take 50 something seconds on a Mega Drive. Now, does that mean that everything about Pale was awful and that it's it's not the best TV to use? Uh, no. Uh, in fact, the TVs in Europe uh, were set up to use certain plugs, which meant that the TV could receive both composite and RGB signals. So the picture quality was, was better. So what you see is that the colors were far more vibrant on a Pale TV than they were on an NTSC TV. So... Interestingly enough, if we look back through kind of the technology behind what the difference was between the two, what you see is that, of course, when it comes to games that were programmed for 50 hertz, there's a a lot of advantages that come to that too. So for example, if a game that was programmed at 50 hertz is actually using less processing power, so if it was coded for that, it will actually be able to play the game faster than you could potentially on an NTSC console. So there are certain games that you cannot play on an NTSC uh, TV because they would be far too fast. Like, for example, Bubble Bobble. Uh, for, oh, uh, God. Game. Yeah, I know your favorite Ultimate one. Ultimate right? Bubble Bobble. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, New Zealand Stories, another example of a game that you wouldn't be able to play uh, if you tried to do it on a 60 hertz TV. So again, it's there are games that were programmed for Pale, that were games that were specifically programmed for NTSC. It's just the unfortunate part is that a lot of game developers at the time were just too lazy to make a game version for just the Pale region, which is strange if you think about it too. I mean, Sega was so huge in Europe compared to Nintendo but you would think that they would try to make region games that would you know would work the best right. on those tvs and give them the best experience unfortunately it was just not the case now nowadays though consoles are kind of optimized for digital signals rather than analog so that's one of the biggest problems is that you were using waves uh, rather than uh, packets of data so similar to what your computer does when it downloads stuff it's not using a wave or a radio transmission it's using packets of data So that means that games are optimized for whatever TV you play them on. So to kind of close things up here, at least in summation, it still amazes me that choices that were made in the 1800s still affected kids in the 1980s (laughs) and 1990s uh, as a result of that. So hopefully you enjoyed this little lesson behind technology behind it and uh, maybe answer some questions about pale versus NTSC for you. But wanted to say thank you for attending today's lesson. Just a reminder, if you have any stories you'd like to hear from us, you can message us at gamersweekpodcast at gmail.com and we might feature your suggestion on the show. For example, this one was actually suggested to us by one of our patrons, Davey PGH, who grew up in Ireland. So he wanted to hear a little bit more about it. I would actually like to hear more about um, those who were brought up on PAL and the first time that they played an NTSC and noticed that things were noticeably faster. Or just how they were supposed to be. Right, right. right. (laughs) The interesting part is that a lot of that happened uh, when ROMs became popular for computers, is that Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of folks from Europe go, wait, 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 Sonic 1 plays this fast? (laughs) (laughs) This does not sound right. So it's, you know, again, interesting that you you don't know what you don't know until you find out. Exactly. That was deep. (laughs) Hashtag so deep. 
Professor Rypransky <laughs> History 101. The deep talks. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to episode seven of Gamers Week podcast. And a great big thank you to the Retro Game Club podcast for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to check out their links in the show notes. Thank you. If you want to connect with Gamers Week, follow us on Twitter at Gamers Week PC. You can email us at gamersweekpodcast at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitch at twitch.tv slash gamersweekpodcast. Visit our merch store at gamers-week-podcast.creator-spring.com. Or if you want to do it the easy way, follow the link in the show notes. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gamersweek. And finally, since you made it all the way to the end of this episode, please leave us a rating and a review to let us know how we did. We really do value your feedback and we want to know what you think. And while you're there, consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. That's all for us today. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Y'all come back now, you hear? That's all, folks. Thank you.